We'll get the organ back. It'll come. It's going to be here for Easter. But until then, you can play the piano for me anytime. <laughs> um, three scriptures today. Again, I'm, I'm making sure that you hear the First Corinthians scriptures because they're really, really solid scriptures about how the church is to be in the world. Um, and so, but first we hear this scripture from Nehemiah. Nehemiah says... All the people gathered together into the square before the water gate. Um, that's the name of a gate. It was called the water gate. It is not a hotel in D.C. They told the scribe Ezra to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. Accordingly, the priest Ezra brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could hear with understanding. This was the first day of the seventh month. He read from it, facing the square before the water gate, from early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of the people, for he was standing above all the people. And when he opened it, the people stood up. 
Then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. So they read from the book, from the law of God, with the interpretation. And they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was governor, and Ezra, the priest, and the scribe, and the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. And then he said to them, Go your way. Eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions of them to those for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy to our God. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Now here's 1 Corinthians. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. Indeed, the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot would say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear would say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole body were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. And if all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many members, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the members of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And those members of the body that we think less honorable, we clothe with greater honor. And, uh, and our less respectable members are treated with greater respect. Whereas our more respectable members do not need this. But God has so arranged the body, giving greater honor to the inferior member, that there may be no dissension within the body but the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together with it. If one member is honored, all rejoice together with it. Now, if you are the body of Christ and individually members of it, and God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then deeds of power, then gifts of healing, forms of assistance, forms of leadership, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? 
but strive for the greater gifts. And I will show you still more, a still more excellent way. Now Luke, in the fourth chapter, picks up, Jesus is an adult who has entered ministry at this point. And this is how it goes. Then Jesus, filled with the power of the Spirit, returned to Galilee, and a report about him spread through all the surrounding country. He began to teach in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. When Jesus came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. He went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. He stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And Jesus rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed upon him. And then he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we see in this text, in the fourth chapter of Luke, by now we have had the birth narrative, we have seen Jesus as a 12-year-old, And by the fourth chapter, Jesus has been baptized by John in the Holy Spirit. He has moved into the desert to be tempted by the devil and protected by the Holy Spirit. And he has started his ministry of preaching and teaching through the Holy Spirit. And he comes to his hometown, Nazareth. So after hanging out with the Holy Spirit... For all this time, Jesus comes home. But in the meantime, Jesus has been growing his reputation as a preacher and a teacher. Jesus is so good at this point that he's the lead-in for Joel Osteen on Sunday morning. People know all about this new young preacher and how good he is. You know, he's built up his reputation. He's gotten to a point where people know who he is. He's gotten everybody around to start talking about him. And then he goes home. And you can just hear him. I changed his diaper in the nursery when he was two months old. He used to run through the middle of our pews and cause trouble. I remember him during the children's sermon when he wouldn't shut up.
When he was a sullen teenager, he'd sit in the back of the church pews and pout. He and his dad came to fix our doorway one day, and he did a really lousy job. Do you hear these kind of things? Do you remember, you know, you like, you think about some kid that's grown up here. It happens every time someone who is now an adult comes back, especially if they come back with a child of their own. Joanne Winters can tell you all kinds of story about every squib kid that was in Sunday school. Carol can tell you about every Monroe kid that was in her, her uh, daycare, right? I mean, it's just part of our human nature to say, oh, yeah, I knew that kid when, and I can hardly believe that he's grown up into this great preacher. But Jesus comes to his hometown synagogue and does what he does. And this was a common thing in the synagogues because... The way they worked was that somebody was in charge of the synagogue, was like an administrator, a president, if you will. And then someone else would come in in the morning and say, okay, it's my turn today. I'll read the scripture. And usually if you read the scripture, then you got to also say a little message about it. Basically what we would call a sermon. And this is what Jesus is doing all around the state he lives in, today he comes home. And it's not a coincidence, the text he picks. His ministry has started. He has been baptized, he has been tempted, and now he's preaching and teaching. And he lays out for the people his plan. This is his mission statement for what the kingdom of God is going to look like under his leadership as a Messiah. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight for the blind, and let the oppressed go free. Four things. You actually know the routine that Jesus is following. You may not realize it, and some of you weren't here when we did this, but you'll recall that when you were searching for a pastor, you did something, a process called the path process through the presbytery, where you were asked to spend 40 days praying through various scriptures as individuals and as households. And that time was intended to get the Holy Spirit alive in you, to get you excited about what you were looking for in a church and a pastor. And directed by the Spirit then, you all came together and put all these ideas down on paper. This is what you're looking for. You're looking for someone who can preach well. You're looking for someone that will help us be involved in the community. You're looking for someone that can administrate. You're looking for someone, I don't know what was on the list. I'm spitballing here, but whatever it was, you ended up with me, which was nothing like the person that you thought you were looking for to begin with. Am I right? Now, if you were to describe me, you would say I have some of those traits I just named. 
But when you pictured it in your mind, it wasn't necessarily what you thought you were looking for. So here Jesus is laying out his plan. And it's not at all what the people think the plan for Jesus should be. They know this is the plan for the Messiah. Isaiah has said for a long time that when the Messiah comes, the poor will be free. There will be no more oppression. We'll be liberated people. And Isaiah is, and Isaiah is preaching to people who were captive then to the Babylonians. So to say to them, you're going to be free someday, was an incredible statement. One they could hardly imagine. The people Jesus is talking to knows that's what the Messiah is going to do. But they can't imagine that Jesus, that hometown boy, could possibly be the person that would set others free. It doesn't even occur to them. They can't even put their head around how that could be. And once they do start to put their head around it, here's what happens. Like The part of the story that we're missing is they get so ticked off at him that they run him out of town and they try to kill him. He can't possibly be the Messiah. And how dare he suggest so? Yeah, go ahead and make your plans, boy. Because your plans aren't our plans. Well, here's a lesson from this story today. Sometimes our plans don't turn out quite the way we think they're going to. But if they're guided by the Holy Spirit, they still come out the way they should. You may have grand plans for your life now. I haven't been nine in a long time. But that boy's plans for his life today are big plans for him. Going to play hockey, going to see snow, maybe even going to eat a good meal somewhere, going to hang with my parents, it's all good. For a nine-year-old, what a life. You may have plans like that. Going to marry a cute girl, going to get a good job, going to buy a house, going to have some kids, going to see them grow up, going to get some grandkids, going to live my old age enjoying all of that. It's a good life. Sometimes it doesn't turn out that way, though. Marriages fall apart. Adult children don't turn out the way we thought they might. We don't have the relationships with them we had hoped. 
our businesses and finances fall apart. Those adult kids that didn't turn out like we thought don't let us see our grandkids as much as we should or would like. Somewhere in the midst of all that, we may get sick or just fundamentally get dissatisfied with life. But here's the thing. Is the Holy Spirit involved in your plans? Because if so, even if your plans don't look like you thought they might, they still turn out the way God intends. Bad things sometimes happen to good people. It's just a fact. The rain falls on the just and the unjust is the way the scriptures say it. But if the Holy Spirit guides our plans and guides our ways, things will still turn out the way God intends, and we must always remember that God works for good for all those who love him and seek him. Later in this text, when they're trying to kill Jesus, it says, he just slipped away. God so watches over him that when they want to kill him, he just slips away. Friends, this text is many, many things to us. A reminder to turn to the Old Testament, a reminder to, re- to, to seek what the Messiah is to mean for us, a reminder to care for the widow and the orphan and the oppressed. A reminder to seek the Holy Spirit as we make plans for our life so that God's will and God's way will always be with us no matter how they turn out. Thanks be to God. Amen.